Hello, and welcome to the Power Your Advice podcast, brought to you by Advisorpedia. In this series, we interview innovators from across the financial services industry to help you understand who they are, what they do, and why that matters to you and your clients. And now, please join your host, Doug Heikinen. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we are joined by John Langston, the founder and managing partner of Republic Capital Group. M&A is always an interesting topic in financial services. The last couple of years were pretty hot with the number of transactions in this space as money was easy to find. Is that still the case? I don't know. We've invited John on to talk everything M&A as he has a great view as to what's happening from his company, the Republic Capital Group, who are investment bankers that help clients with M&A liquidity options, succession plans, and capital raises. They work on both the sell side and the buy side. They help asset and wealth management firms maximize long-term value. Welcome, John. Thank you, Doug. Great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. So let's get started by telling us a little bit about yourself, Republic Capital, how it started, and maybe perhaps some of the services you provide. Sure. Uh, I founded Republic Capital Group eight years ago. I have a long history in financial services going back uh, over 17 years, uh, working in asset management, uh, wealth management, uh, and even some early time in the insurance industry. So I feel like that personal experience gives me really a great overview. Eight years ago, I saw a great need for a boutique firm to focus on true investment banking. I often tell uh, clients and prospects that we are not consultants, we're not coaches, we are not seminar providers. We work, we spend you know, over 90% of our time working with actual clients on actual transactions. And so been fortunate to, to lead about 40 RIA specific transactions the last four years, uh, many of them, some of the larger transactions in the space. And so uh, that's our focus. We're very much an outcome focused firm and, and serve clients in that way. What's your current outlook for M&A activity in the wealth management space? Some, some are expecting a cool down this year. What's, what's your view? It's been really interesting, Doug. You know, toward the end of last year, uh, some so there was a lot of public commentary by different um, people focused on M&A and the RI space predicting a slowdown. Uh, we were publicly saying that we weren't seeing it, that we were seeing uh, a lot of activity. We were hearing from the largest buyers in the space that we work with every day saying that they had the largest pipeline of their opportunities ever. And so we just had difficulty accepting at that point that there was a slowdown. It was interesting because right after sort of a landmark article, you know, predicting the slowdown came out that week, we had a record transaction week for RAs. And so the following week, there was a number of articles about the reversal. So it's quite interesting. What I would say is a couple of things. One, it feels like the you know, market correction we had had a couple of impacts. One, it, it caused advisors to need to spend more time with their clients and there was less focus on transactions. And that makes sense, right? It's just a bandwidth issue. Secondly, I feel like there were a number of firms, tend to be a little bit smaller firms, I would say in the three to $800 million range that were contemplating maybe doing something and ended up deciding to get involved in looking at transactions. And that has led to, again, a number of our, uh, the relationship out there saying, hey, we have the most opportunities ever. And so I think you have that in play. Now, counterbalancing that is a couple of things. One, it's true that these large buyers now, because they have a lot more selection are being more selective, right? 
a few years ago when I would call a firm and say, hey, we've got an RIA available for sale, there were very few questions about the firm. They just wanted to get involved in, in the process. Now there's a lot more review of the quality. And so I think for the firm that has issues or challenges, they need to understand they're in a very competitive environment. Of course, from my seat, I would argue uh, that professional help will help them do better in that process. Um, and so I think people need to realize there's more competition. And then finally, the third factor I would say that's impacting things is the perception that things are different. Uh, I am very comfortable being very explicit to say for a quality firm in the marketplace today, we are not seeing for our clients any diminishment in valuation, period. Um, occasionally, we will refer to this, and I don't want to be too strong, but we will say it's buyer propaganda in the sense that buyers would love to pay lower prices for firms. Of course, that's their job, and they, they should try to do that. Um, but, but for a high-quality firm, they should have no concerns about um, you know, what's available to them. So what will happen this year, right? I, I've stayed away from predictions. I'll simply say this. I think it's a bit like uh, the old expression, you know, the the uh, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. I think it was Jim McKay used to say this on ABC Sports. Um, but the reality is for a firm that uh, is determined to do a transaction, the market's open, capital's available. There are many firms still who want to be in our space. And I think they can, in, in their sense, uh, experience a thrill of victory by pursuing it and determining to do so. Uh, and sort of not listening to what I would refer to as the crowd, people making commentary, friends, et cetera, just speculating, assuming, you know, what might happen. And then I do think there will be some, um, you know, defeat in terms of people who either don't go out and pursue a transaction because they don't think it's a good time. And then in their firm, something material changes and the window does close for them specifically. Uh, and so I'm hoping that 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 won't happen. But I think it's going to be a bit of that this year. Those who determine to do something will, will be successful and can be. Uh, and those who uh, don't pursue that may see some, some challenges uh, in their space. I, I would also say that I think that um, firms with strong challenges will not have as many interested parties and that will affect their valuation. But overall, uh, I expect the activity to be, continue to be very strong, um, really determined by what each firm, uh, its own self-determination. What are some of the trends that you've been seeing in the M&A space of late? Yeah, more more firms, uh, smaller firms getting involved. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of discussion about valuation, which we, we've kind of covered. Um, I'm hearing from, from some of the most prolific buyers, at least some of the ones we work with, saying, hey, if it's not a larger firm, you know, call it 700 million plus, um, you know, we'd rather pass for right now. Uh, and most of our work is, is, is been upstream. But um, so there's a focus on that. So just a lot more selectivity for different reasons, either the quality, the size, things like that. I think that that's a theme. Uh, there is more work on the what I would call structuring side, meaning in some cases we have clients that are very high growth firms who want to be rewarded for that over the next two, three, four years. And so we are advocating for them to have longer earnouts, higher payouts, things like that, right? In other cases, um, you know, a buyer is saying, look, I'm willing to meet the valuation, but the firm is going to need to continue to grow for the next two years. There's a little more of that uh, definitely in the marketplace. And I, I think that's an area that can, you know, make a big impact uh, on a transaction. So I, I would say those things are the, the trends I'm seeing. Let's talk about some of the biggest mistakes buyers and sellers have during the M&A process. What's, what are they and what's your advice on how to avoid them? Yeah, it's a good question, and I'm 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 I've thought about this a lot in in thinking about uh, our space. 
I would say the first thing uh, is not understanding the importance of how the financial data is presented, reviewed, and uh, to a potential buyer. Um, the reality is there are a number of things in the marketplace uh, that can be adjusted around financials. And we obviously spend a lot of time doing that. So just uh, I've often encounter a firm who's had someone approach them about buying them. And I say, well, have you provided financials? And they say, yeah, we just sent them everything. It's really a, a big disadvantage for that firm to not present to that potential buyer the very first time. Here's how we view our financials. Here's how we think that uh, the marketplace should view them. That is often millions of dollars in difference in value. It's very common. So I would say that's a big mistake. In addition, I think you've, you've already sort of started the relationship without having a real strong strategy because you just provided those financials. So that's one. The other one I'll mention is really, um, um, you know, basing their thought process and strategy around a lot of assumptions or opinions or consultants or their friends. The reality is until you go into a formal professional process, which means, you know, hire an investment banker, preparing the materials, preparing the financials, and really having a very professional a process that's designed to get to an outcome where you get a number of offers in writing, you really don't know what's possible. And we often try to help clients in the beginning understand kind of where we'll end up. But it's very common that we'll go through a process and we'll receive some bids on the firm that far exceed everyone's expectations, including ours. And then there's cases within that same process, well, there will be some bids that are surprisingly low. And it reminds us each and every time that happens that there is a big delta among the buyer universe of how they'll view and value a firm. But at that moment, you know, my argument would be the client is making a decision based on a lot of clarity and actual opportunity. And I just see a lot of decisions and strategy based on assumptions or what an expert said. I think that those things can be helpful at times, but they can also, you know, create a cloud, a stream. So I would say don't don't provide financials without a strong strategy and understanding of what you're trying to accomplish value-wise. And then don't base your strategy on assumptions. Find out what's actually possible. And if you conclude through a professional process, there aren't good options, that's a great decision because you've done it based on information. Let's look at the other side of that. What are some of the great keys to a successful MA&A deal? Yeah. So uh, look, I, I would say... Um, I would say making sure that the expectations of each side are clarified as early in the process as possible. Uh, oftentimes, uh, there's a lot of focus, and again, these tend to be situations where you know investment bankers aren't involved, um, where a lot of relationship building is done, a lot of things are talked about and dreamed about, all of which is wonderful experience. But because the expectations of both buyer and seller weren't clarified, clearly enough at every level, right? Culturally, financially, all those things, you come to an abrupt point where it becomes very clear suddenly this is not going to work. And so I feel like clear expectations from both buyer and seller are very important. And uh, I feel like that is a has to be a very intentional process uh, to walk through. So I would say that's, that, that, that's uh, really key to having uh, a strong process because then there are no surprises. Right, um, yeah, and that leads to to a, a great outcome. Here's a good one: How can firms structure their business to increase innovation? <laughs> Everybody asks you that, right? That's a great question, um, man. Uh, would it be okay if we went on the next two or three hours, or um, <laughs> maybe so? We back, maybe we come back and do another one just on that. Yes, it's a great question, Doug. Thank you. So, look, 
The reality is that there are some key things you can do. I'll try to highlight a few. I will refer to one as revenue recognition at the enterprise level. What do I mean? Some firms are structured, what I would refer to as more of a platform, meaning it, you know, compensation comes from the client to the firm, but it's already earmarked and locked into going to an advisor at a certain percentage. Um, that is more of a platform firm, and those advisors often can, can leave and do different things. We've had a lot of success restructuring firms around what I would call enterprise revenue recognition. And it happens in a couple of ways. One, um, you, you equitize the, the existing advisors with their consent and their excitement, frankly. And then the, the enterprise is able to recognize the revenue and immediately at that moment uh, becomes a much more investable asset. Uh, you can still distribute to advisors in ways that are attractive to them, um, but it, it, it changes the way the marketplace and the investment community uh, can invest in that firm and it gives the enterprise uh, much more value. It's in some cases been uh, extraordinarily high. Um, and so I would say that's one area of great opportunity. And then secondly, and this is not surprising, but uh, growth continues to be uh, very attractive to a lot of investors. Um, but beyond growth, I would say a system process or ability to attract new prospective clients for your existing advisors is by far the, the greatest way to, to increase your value. Um, and, and when I go through the marketplace today, and we've been fortunate to work with some of the largest firms in the country, um, the reality is they all have the ability to, to source new clients for their advisors. And that just changes the equation um, because the other option is that a firm hires an advisor where he or she has that innate ability to go and attract assets. And those people uh, rightly deserve you know, more significant uh, contribution and, and therefore more of the value flows to them. But at an enterprise level, if that enterprise can generate and develop client prospects or clients for the advisors to serve, that, that value shifts to the enterprise. So in terms of increasing enterprise value, I would say it's very important how revenue is recognized and distributed. And then secondly, I would say the enterprise needs to be able to attract uh, new business uh, for growth. How can firms best integrate post-transaction? I think this is a really big deal uh, because sometimes everybody still doesn't want to be there. Yeah, it, it really is. And I think over the next few years, we'll, we'll have success stories and stories of challenges. Um, and Doug, I really try to give clients as, as practical advice I can in terms of what they can actually execute. What I've seen and observed and, and come up with is sort of a central idea of how to manage a process uh, is the following. I think it's very important not to have arbitrary, keyword, arbitrary deadlines that create unnecessary stress on the new relationship. Part of this is a psychological thing, right? All of us, myself included, we tend to like certain things a particular way. And when we you know, make an acquisition, bring a new group in, it bothers us that, that things are not all done exactly the same way, right? Again, particularly personality and philosophy of a particular organization. And I can tell you, there's a wide range. There's some large groups out there that it will be a lot of internal friction for them, at least mentally, until everything is harmonized, right? That's just how they're wired. And it probably starts with the founder. Then there are some other large groups that have a more relaxed approach. And what I've found is if if, if there will be strong collaboration without these arbitrary deadlines that create all this pressure and friction, because the reality is a lot of things um, between two firms have been working well within their own context, right? 
And so by taking that pressure off, better decisions are made. It's less stressful. And to be clear, I'm not in any way suggesting that people just have an open-ended timeline, that, that you never have any deadlines. I'm not saying that. But if you really stop and, and, and look yourself in the mirror, sometimes you have to admit, you know what, it's okay if it takes us six months instead of three. Um, and that is, again, not in any way. It's funny because a big part of our culture here is speed at Republic. We, we want things to move quickly and efficiently. Um, but, but the reality is, when you're bringing a merger together, some things go very quickly and easily. You're surprised. And I often hear clients say, we thought that was going to be hard. It was easy. And then they'll say, this area was way more difficult than we anticipated. And that's part of the problem with putting these arbitrary deadlines in just to have a deadline um, is you, you, you don't exactly know which areas are, are going to have challenges. So uh, and maybe it sounds like a simple idea, but, but my philosophy is don't allow arbitrary deadlines or sort of you know, philosophical or what I would call personality-driven stress to come into what's a, a practical business process. Keep, keep evaluating um, what, what is critical and what you can take time to ensure a smooth, smooth process on. Tell me about a recent deal you advised on or maybe a deal that had a lot of impact on the industry. Yeah. So uh, this has all been publicly reported, so it's, it's fine for me to talk about it. But we had two firms, a firm called uh, Parallel Advisors based in San Francisco, California, and then a Phoenix firm called um, Audis Asset Management. That was uh, Both of those firms had minority investments from immigrant partners. Uh, immigrants have been very active in the space for, for some time and has a number of investments in great firms. And these two firms had both grown significantly since their investment, and they had a desire, and we, we led this transaction. We brought these two firms together uh, in terms of uh, creating a, the structure of a deal for them to merge together. And so uh, in that process, it became clear that ultimately for them to take the next step and to have um, you know, the sort of the next institutional investor, we would need to both merge the firms together, we would have to uh, buy out the immigrant partner's position, and have to bring in a new capital partner. Uh, and these firms uh, combined uh, were something on the order of about uh, $7 billion in terms of assets. So a significant a significant firm. But of course, between the two firms, we've got a few hundred people, we've got um, you know, uh, different points of view between each of those firms and then immigrant partners as a minority investor. And then we have the new investor. So we were able to, to do a, um, a simultaneous transaction where we merged the firms, we, we bought out immigrant partners, and we brought in a new institutional capital partner called Golden Gate Capital, a private equity firm. Uh, and we're able to accomplish that. We were um, very pleased because we had unanimous shareholder support from those each of those firms to execute that transaction, which was close to close to 50 shareholders uh, in the process. But you can imagine between 50 shareholders, uh, two firms, two capital partners, lots of different complexity. Uh, we were fortunate to work with Chris Frieden uh, at Austin Bird, who uh, uh, early on said to me, and I hope he, he won't mind me quoting him, but he said, wow, this looks this is going to be really complicated, John. And I was really nervous when he said that. But then he said, I think it's going to be fun too. And so I said, okay, good. That's what we want the council saying. But that was a really significant transaction that um, you know created a lot of value for everyone involved and uh, is, is helped form what is one of the strongest, uh, fastest growing firms on the West Coast in terms of uh, what is now called, you know, Parallel Advisors, that, that would be the branding today. So that was a great transaction, a lot of complexity, but 
um, exciting to work on it. And, and an illustration of the type of work we try to do where we, we knew both firms, we brought them together in their initial conversations. We negotiated the buyout of the existing partner and we negotiated the investment of the new firm. And so uh, something we're proud of and that, that, uh, that firm uh, will be having an impact on the industry for many years to come. There's a lot of talk about cultural fit when companies are making the transaction. Can you elaborate on this for us? Yeah. So look, I, I made some comments about this publicly. Look, cultural fit is extremely important. My perspective I try to bring to it is that 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 phrasing cultural fit means so many different things to different people that I think it can be subject to a lot of interpretation. I'm resistant to the idea uh, that that people need to have the same philosophy, the same you know, pick, you know, same interest, all that to have a good culture. We've seen a lot of large firms in our history, both RA and other types of companies grow to have people all over the country. Well, by definition, their different origins and backgrounds and geography probably means they have different views on different issues in life, but they found a way to create a great company culture. What I encourage clients to think about is finding a firm with a similar mission as yours. Uh, And to be clear, I'm in no way saying culture is not important. I don't want to get in trouble for that. But I am saying that if you find a real strong common mission fit, that mission over time will help shape the culture of the firm. My my example I would use is this. If the leadership of of an RA calls the company together tomorrow and says, our new mission is to grow by 50% a year, I can promise you it's going to change the culture of that firm. Um, and assuming they were growing, you know, not growing before. And so my point is really find a strong missional fit with someone where you're trying to accomplish similar things. And perhaps ideally you're doing it slightly differently and maybe their skills and what they're good at will enhance the ability of the company to accomplish this mission. Um, and, and I look at, you know, um, you know other large organizations um, that, that share a common mission I think that over time, the common mission will shape the culture. I think of, of, of the mission as, you know, as the foundation of the house, and then the culture is everything built around it. It's kind of what you're experiencing day to day. But the reality is that structure rests upon, hey, we're trying to accomplish this. And, and obviously, in our world, the preeminent mission is we take care of the client, we serve them right. Uh, that's part of the fiduciary dynamic of, of the RA world. And so my argument to people is find a strong missional fit. And, and then see if the cultures can adapt and meld together uh, over time. John, this has been just fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us. And we're going to have to have you back for a couple hours on increasing. <laughs> I guess I committed to that publicly, so I'm locked in. Well, thank you, Doug. This is a great opportunity. You've got a great uh, audience of really bright people. I appreciate you uh, thinking of Republic Capital Group. All right. Good luck. To learn more about Republic Capital Group, please visit republiccapgroup.com. Please follow us for timely updates on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, all at Advisorpedia. For everyone at Advisorpedia, our producer, Julia Smolin, and the Power Your Advice podcast team, this is Doug Heikman.